So guys, we've been asking um, this question in Psalms 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again? You know, why would we be seeking revival? That your people may rejoice in you. You know, guys, you all, you guys already know that I don't have a lot of experience pastoring a church. I've told you, um, you know, several times, you know, that, that I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, I kind of thought about the mistakes I made at first, um, you know, and, and I did this in teaching too. You know, when you go into teaching, uh, like a math teacher, I basically just did what my teachers did for me, you know. I forgot, you know, how boring it was to sit in class, and then I turn around and do the very same boring things for the first few years because I had no idea, you know. And I, when I first was coaching, you know, in sports, I would do what my coaches did, Not, never taking into consideration my personnel. We weren't as fast. We weren't as big. You know, you had to factor. I just regurgitated basically all the drills that, you know, I did in high school, you know, and they were unsuccessful. And when I got to thinking about church, you know, I started out, um, you know, just kind of doing what everybody else does. You know, I was seeking, I guess, to be a copy of a copy. Well, you know, you got you to gotta self-promote yourself. You know, you got to get out on the internet. You got to put stickers on the back of your car. I'm not saying that any of that is wrong, but a couple years into this, I get this. I know what we need to be all about. It's about revival, living in a state of revival and saying, Lord, will you not revive us again? Because if the presence of the Lord is here, you won't have to self-promote. You know, people will come because that's where he is, that authentic presence of the Lord. So that's why we're asking this question. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you because we rejoice in many things, but rejoice in the Lord throughout the week is something that we do not see. And I thought about this. I've been reading this Charles Finney book, How to Experience Revival. I've probably read it like, like three times. But um, I love this kind of what revival to me looks like in the world. And I'm asking God to give us our own story that we can write down like this. It says, Mr. Finney once visited a factory to see the machinery. Because he had just come from a revival, he was in a reverent mood. All the workers knew who he was. One lady who saw him as she was working made a rude comment to her neighbor and then laughed. Now, how many times do we see that at work? Just a rude comment and laughed. Mr. Finney stopped and looked at her with sorrow in his eyes. She stopped working. Breaking her thread, she then became so upset that she could not repair the thread and start again. Trying to calm herself, she looked out the window. But again and again, her emotions got the best of her. Finally, she sat down and just cried. Mr. Finney then approached her and spoke with her. She soon showed a deep sense of sin. Break up the fallow ground. The feeling spread through the establishment like fire. And in a few hours, almost every person employed there was under conviction. The feeling was so pervasive that the owner, though a worldly man, was astounded and stopped all work to hold a prayer meeting. 
In the owner's opinion, it was a great deal more important to have these people converted than to continue production. In a few days, the owner and nearly all the employees, about 3,000, were fully converted. The Lord's rebuke of this woman's comment through Mr. Finney's reverent yet compassionate reaction brought her under conviction, seeing this undoubtedly, seeing this undoubtedly inspired the massive revival. That's why we're asking for revival, that he may revive us and not so we can come to church and experience great music and great sermons and all that stuff so that our demeanor in this presence that we rejoice in, we go out to our workplaces and not go barking at everybody and tell them they need to be saved and tell them they're all going to hell, but just in a compassionate way, let them see the light that show that our light so shine before men that others may see our good deeds and they will want to glorify our father in heaven. This is the question I want you answering day Asking day after day, will you not revive us again that we may rejoice in you? Hosea chapter 10 verse 12, the next verse says this. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Okay, When you want to experience revival, you sow to yourself in righteousness. That's not just coming to church on Sunday night or Sunday morning or even Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You know, But that is getting into this word, letting it wash over you. Talk to people, have conversations about God. Listen to Christian music. Listen to praise and worship. Get in tune with him. Listen to solid preachers who really teach the word. So to yourself in righteousness, just completely keep pouring it in and reap in mercy because the more you sow in righteousness, the more you'll realize you are not righteous. And the more you come to God, he'll say, of course, you're not righteous, but reap my mercy. That's why I sent my son to break up that fallow ground. Fallow ground is ground that once produced, but it lies bare now. And when you start tilling that fallow ground, it gets dirty. It's messy. But it's time to seek the Lord. He will come and rain righteousness upon you. That's what we want to see here. And what is revival? We've been using this definition. Renewed conviction of sin and repentance. That's what happened in that Charles Finney story. A renewed sense of sin and conviction. I can't be talking like that. I can't be doing this stuff. I've got to do things that honor my Lord. And followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. You would rather lose thousands of dollars than disobey him. You would rather that girlfriend break up with you and not have that relationship anymore than to disobey him. You want intensely, you have this desire to live in obedience to God. It's giving up your will to God's will. Thy will be done here on earth through me as you've already willed it in heaven. Could this happen for us? Could it happen? You know, what does it look like? Well, it looks like that Finney story. It looks like Austin's story, being at praise and worship practice and just sitting behind the drums and feeling the presence of the Lord and knowing, Lord, I'm not right with you. I'm not where I need to be and reaping mercy 
and saying and, and inviting him and, and feeling that forgiveness and being washed by the water of the word of God. It's a process of purification. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, you see this really cool little process of the refiner's fire. It said, who can endure the day of his coming? You know, I remember, man, as a teenager sitting there really thinking about the day of his coming. And I always, like, didn't want it to happen. You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, man, if he comes today, I am like dead meat. You know, like, that's just, who can endure the day of his coming? You know, I wasn't ready back then. You know, I, I, I still, something in me is still kind of afraid. If he really came today, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'd stand before the Lord. Who can endure that? And who can stand when he appears? Obviously nobody, because in the New Testament, you know, he says every knee shall bow and every tongue's gonna confess that Jesus Christ, you are Lord. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like Okay, now I love how he gives us these earthly things to illustrate heavenly things. He says, for he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit. I love this because God himself sits as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. After you've gone through this process of purification, you are ready to offer the Lord a real offering. Music changes up here when you've been purified. I've played for him unpurified and it's nice and it's fun. I've played for him purified and it's like an experience. It's like him just being inside you the whole time and it's, and it's wonderful. But I read this story that kind of illustrates this refiner's fire and I'm going to read it to you because I can't say it any better than this. Some time ago, a few ladies met in a certain city to read the scriptures and make them the subject of conversation. While reading the third chapter of Malachi, they came upon a remarkable expression in the third, the third verse. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. One lady's opinion was that it was intended to convey the view of the sanctifying influence of the grace of Christ. Then she proposed to visit a silversmith and report to them what he said on the subject. She went accordingly and without telling the object of her errand, begged to know the process of refining silver, which he fully described to her. But sir, she said, do you sit while the work of refining is going on? Oh, yes, madam, replied the silversmith. I must sit with my eye steadily fixed on the furnace. For if the time necessary for refining be exceeded in the slightest degree, the silver will be injured. The lady at once saw the beauty and comfort, too, of the expression, he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Christ sees it needful to put his children into a furnace. His eye is steadily intent on the work of purifying, and his wisdom and love are both engaged in the best manner for them. Their trials do not come at random. 
The hairs of your head are all number. Whatever it is you are going through, it is a trial specifically for you that you might be purified. And even though we may panic and say, Lord, you know, I don't know what to do. He's got his eye on you. He doesn't throw you in there and leave and wait for you to burn out and put more on there. His eyes are upon you. He's watching you. He's molding you. He's making you. He's purifying you through your specific set of trials. As the lady was leaving the shop, the silversmith called her back and said he had still further to mention that he only knows when the process, that only he knows when the process of purifying was complete by seeing his own image reflected in the silver. What an example. He purifies us so much. And how do we know that the job has been complete? We look like him. Like we talk like him where all of a sudden you used to react in a burst of rage, a burst of anger. You were ready to kick anybody that, that you did not like. Now all of a sudden you're acting like him. You're looking upon them with compassion and love. What happened to you? What's wrong with you? I have conformed to the image of my Lord and Savior. That's what the process of purification looks like. And so this has taught me something very valuable. You know, I hear people say, well, I've been called to preach or I've been called to be the worship leader. I've been called. I'm no longer impressed by that kind of stuff. I'm impressed by the call to be consecrated, to be purified, to be holy, to be separate, to figure out who you are in him. Before any of this can take place, that's the call. When nobody's looking at you, when you don't have the spotlight, can you do it? Can you preach? You know, when he called me to preach, I used to preach for a couple of years in front of like six people. And if I did a bad job, I went to the auditorium at Tomasi Salem High School and I preached to nobody. And I didn't care. I got just as much joy and just as much satisfaction in preaching to nobody. And the more I did that, the more I was purified, and the more I perfected, you know, this art of preaching, though I'm nowhere close to where I need to be. But can you do it when nobody's looking? You know, I'm impressed with those people. When did you respond to that call? Yeah, sure, when I was 16, I responded to the call to get saved. And so I said the sinner's prayer. And, you know, I'm like, well, there you go. I'm good to go. But, but the more life went on over the next five, six years, I didn't like where I ended up. And I didn't like what I was doing. And I wondered why I wasn't feeling the presence of God like other people. It's because I had not answered this call to be consecrated. So somewhere around 21, 22, I said, I'm going to read this book. And I began to break up that fallow ground and sow in righteousness. And, and it took me 15 months to read this book. But at the end of it, I was different. I was 
changed. I had been refined. I no longer saw my trials as something like, oh, take this away. I saw it as something like he's foreordained this. I must endure this with patience and I must live this thing out and still honor him despite these trials because they were made for me to be conformed to his image. Have you responded to that call? Yes, I figure everybody in here has been saved, said the prayer, but have you answered the call to consecration? Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do. Whatever you put me through, I'm no longer gonna be struck by any kind of panic because whatever you put me through is, is designed to perfect me and make me more like you. That's what it's like to be in the refiner's fire. Will Lifeline Community Church respond to that call? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, I love how he explains this Christian life thing. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. You know, it sounds kind of weird, but they used to wear these long robes, you know, and those kind of things. And when it was time to like go, when it was time to like get after it, they would, they would pull it up and they would tie a knot in it and they were ready to move, to run, to play a game, to, to do whatever they needed to do to work so they could move, so they could be agile. And that's what it's like to respond to this call. You gird up the loins of your mind. You say, okay. Whatever I've been thinking up to this point has not done me a lick of good. I'm not closer to, the God, to God. I don't know what his presence feels like. Okay, I am ready. I am like girding up the loins of my mind. I am preparing. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to remove all, all distractions, and I'm going after this. Be sober. Be in your right mind and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. We rest our hope on him. Because when you gird up the loins of your mind, you're going to start thinking, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff I've done. Look at you, God, you can't save me. I'm so bad. You're not resting your hope on what you've done. You're resting your hope on what he did. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever... Whoever who's done whatever can be forgiven shall not perish but have everlasting life. As obedient children. You know, we forget sometimes, I think, that we are to obey God as children. You know, he gets to say, because I said so. I mean, we say it to our kids, go do this. Why? Because I said so. You know, so he does the same thing. You know, we don't look up at God, Why? Because I said so. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. The way you've done it up till now has not been working. So gird up your loins and get prepared to change. Because when you were conformed to the former lust, as in your ignorance, that's why you're girding up the loins of your mind. You didn't know and now you want to know. You were in ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And you know, I used to think that was an impossible statement. There's no way we can be holy as the Lord, but you know, there's degrees of holiness. 
You know, in Isaiah 6, it says those seraphim were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And if you say it three times, it's an exponential holiness. It's a holiness that we cannot obtain. There's no one like our God. But when he says be holy, it means be separate. You should look different than the world and the way you handle your finances and the way you handle your, your patience and the way that you handle your anger, you should look different. You should be holy. You should be separate. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, you know, where I work, if I, if I pull a kid aside and say, why did you do this? The first thing he says, because so-and-so did this. But God, right there, that will do you no good And when you stand before him. Because without partiality, he judges according to your work, to each one's work. I don't care what everybody else did, and I don't care what your friend did, and I don't care what that person you can't stand did to you. I'm judging you according to your work. It's all about you and your attitude and what you've done. So conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And do we look at it like that? Do we look at it as like a time of our stay here? We live our lives like we plan on being here forever. Let's store up as much treasure as I can possibly have in this life. But We look at our stay here as temporary. The only reason we are here is to conform and learn to to get that sin out of our lives and be conformed to the image of God so that when we go to heaven, it's a continuation of everything we've done down here in the first place. You know, I learned how to praise and worship you. Thank you. Will you get to do that for eternity in heaven? I mean, it's amazing the people that can't stand church. Well, I can't wait for this to be over. It's never going to be over in heaven. That's what it's all about, praising him and worshiping him. And you will love it. You either love it or you won't. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. But every once in a while when the offering plate was passed, I threw a $20 bill in there every once in a while. You think that redeems you? That God needs something as corruptible as money? You know, if he wanted it, he would take it. You know, so it's not like, oh, well, I better give this to God. He needs it more than I do. No, if he wanted it. He would take it. And that kind of stuff does not save you. Neither does your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your father. Well, I go to the same church that my parents went to, whose parents went there, and I follow those way. That kind of aimless conduct does not save you. Our hope, we are saved with the precious blood of Christ, period. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, the Jewish people would have understood this much better than us because they would have raised a pure and spotless lamb that on the day of atonement would have gone. They would have taken this lamb that possibly that they loved, that certainly that the kids would have loved. And they would have watched the blood be drained from this lamb. And it would be a sorrowful time if they really cared and they did it right and didn't just buy one from the market to kill right quick. If they did it right, this was a moment of sorrow because the lamb gave his life so that I may be clean. And that's our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave his blood 
He was without blemish. He was without spot that we might be clean. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You know, we forget in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus. You know, he was made manifest. He came here. The tomb is empty. And that's our hope that because he rose again, we will too. Through him, we believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You can be holy. You can be separate. You can be different. And it's in the place of devotion that you learn to be holy. And I want to ask you, are you winning in the secret place of devotion? I've read that scripture so many times, but until this week when I really started reading it and dissecting it and thinking about it, it started to sink into my heart. And that's what we want. Does anything keep you away from devotion? We must win in the play, in the secret place of devotion, which is just you and God. Where do you go to get away? And it's nobody but you and him. You tell him everything. And then you read this word, asking him to speak to your heart. And then whatever you read, you obey it, knowing that he's in control, knowing that he may have you over the fire, but he will perfect you through it all. Lifeline must go through this process to see revival. There's two parts to revival. It's our part first. We change us. We don't just aimlessly go out and invite people to come to church and hope that they get saved, that kind of thing. It changes us. We become different. Then the world sees that we're different and we want what we had. That's the other part. When the other people come in and get saved because we've gone through the purification of our part. You know, I believe there's, there's three parts to a Christian's walk with God. There's anointing, there's presence, and then there's glory. The anointing, guys, is the power to release. You know, as soon as, you know, Austin, man, he's got the anointing. He has the power to release God's power. I mean, he's just, he's got it. You know, I believe I've been anointed to teach, and I believe he gave me that anointing in a math class, and then he's asking me to use that anointing in a pulpit. You know, so whatever it is he's asked you to do, as I talked to these car- carpenters for Christ yesterday, they're, they're anointed to, to build, to do what they do. They told me a story of a guy that got saved on the roof while they were building. They invited a lost person to come and help them build. And while up on the roof, a guy gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what revival looks like. It's not gonna take place in these four walls or even the new four walls that we build. It's gonna take place out Out there, I believe in a day where the alternative school students that I teach who cuss and have no respect for anybody, I just pray that one day I'll have that look like Charles Finney and they'll look and they'll just feel the remorse for their sin and they'll say, I need the Lord. How do I get him? How do I start? And I get to experience leading them through that. I have to believe that or else I would not want to go to work any day. Because you get no reward.
what I do. You better be ready to give 180 days and receive nothing. But you know what? That's the way I live. The Lord, he's been, he was good to me for many, many years of my life. And I gave him nothing in return. So it's the least that I can do. What keeps you away from devotion? Anointing is the power to release. Presence is the power to touch. The power to feel him. That's what we're experiencing in here. You were starting to feel the presence because through people's anointing, they're starting to do what they've been called to do. Maybe greeting, maybe working in the, for the children to see 40, maybe working one of the tables out here, maybe cleaning up, maybe cooking, whatever it is. When you start operating in your anointing, you have the power to release, which releases that power to touch his manifest present. And then there's the glory which is what I cannot wait to see. That's the power to transform. But the worst thing that I believe has happened in the church, and I pray that this does not happen to me, is that leaders have taken the anointing and they can manifest the presence of the Lord. What they have is like amazing. But being kind of like Americans in this consumer attitude that we have, Americans would just as soon come and watch somebody that has the anointing and presence on their life than realize I can have this for myself. And we feel better about coming and seeing somebody who has it. And I go every Sunday and I see that person who has it, but they don't have it themselves. And what I want to use my anointing for and the presence of God that I feel is to impart it to you and let you know that you can have it too. I don't care if I decrease, if he increases, that's fine with me. But we've kind of allowed this whole rock star preaching thing, which is no good. It doesn't do anybody good. It produces groupies of a church, not disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's what we must be about. People end up looking to the man uh, who's up here, the band who's playing, and not to Jesus himself. They just say, you do Christianity. Let us listen to you and admire you, but we don't want to do it ourselves. Revival will kill, will destroy this way of thinking. Revival equips you to destroy sin. And that's when you will begin to feel the presence of the Lord, when all sin barriers have been removed. If you're not experiencing the presence of the Lord, whose fault is it? Do we really get to say, well, we went to church and didn't experience anything. God's just not moving. God's just not sending the rain. God's just not. No, he never changes. But society and the way we look at sin and all that kind of stuff, it changes. Are we honestly going to be foolish and say, well, God just isn't moving. He's just not doing that kind of thing anymore. No, all the high places must come down. What is it in your Life that's keeping you from devotion to him. What is it? It's got to go. Nathan, do you have any kind of music you can play here? Because guys, listen, I'm not even like halfway through this. And you know, it's already almost 10 after 11. So I'm going to pick up.
uh, next week here. Um, just by the way, who did their homework last, last, last week? All right. The rest of you will have a place after school for detention. You'll have to stay. No lunch for you. Oh, okay. We're not at the alternative school anymore, are we? So, um, but guys, listen, do, um, I guess you don't have the, the homework for last week, but, uh, I wanted you to read numbers chapter 22, 23 and 24. Okay. And then read Jude, uh, 11, which talks about the sin of Balaam and then, uh, go back and read numbers 25. Now what you're going to find is that this guy named Balak asked Balaam to curse um, the people of, of Israel who were kind of going through the Midianites' territory. He said, I don't want them going through here. I've heard all the stuff that they can do. I've heard about their God getting them across the, the Egypt, you know, the, the Red Sea. I've heard about all that stuff. And will you come and curse them so that they can't do any of that stuff to, um, to our people? You know, we just want them gone. Come curse them. And three times Balaam tries to curse them, but he can't. All he can do is bless them. And he's like, look, the hand of the Lord is upon them, and there's nothing you can do about it. Okay? And then it abruptly goes, it says that the Midianite women, um, you know, kind of exposed themselves to them and went and seduced the men of Israel. And so Balaam knew. He told Balak for money, for profit. He said, if you can get these people to sin against God, it will anger him. He will remove his hands of protection. He will remove his presence, and you can have your way with him. And you probably won't even have to have your way with him. God will probably do it for you. And so that's exactly what ended up happening. The men of Israel, even some of the leaders that we're going to talk about next week, um, they sinned. They got into this sexual immorality and God removed his presence. And guys, we are in a hyper-sexual culture. And guys, we must gird up the loins of our mind and say, I will not let this defeat me. You know, and even if you get wrapped into it, never ever stop asking for forgiveness. Never ever quit. Continue to say, Lord, I need you to change my heart. I need you to take it away. Gird up the loins of your mind. So do yourself in righteousness. And he will remove the sin barriers from your life that keep you from tasting the presence of the Lord. Until we taste the presence of the Lord, we will not experience the glory of the Lord, which is when we're trans, where communities get transformed. That's what we want to say. We're not there yet. We're still in the pursue part of our mission statement. Can you pull my mission statement up right quick? Um, the mission of Lifeline Community Church is to cultivate a community of believers who pursue God relentlessly. That's where you get your anointing. You know, and love God deeply. That's where you experience his presence. Serve God wholeheartedly. That's where people see our lives, our light shine so before men that they begin to see our good deeds and they want to glorify our Father in heaven. That's where transformation is. But it must be in this order. The anointing comes through pursuing him. What are you supposed to be doing as a result of knowing 
him, of experiencing him. So if you'll play the music, guys, if you, uh, guys, if you just know that there's something that's keeping you from the presence of the Lord, if you know, if you just can't Monday through Saturday pick up your Bible and get alone with him, if there's something blocking you from pursuing him, will you come and will you just ask him, Oh, Lord, will you remove the sin barriers in my life so that I may pursue you freely, so that I may be anointed, so that I may feel your presence, and so that I may be used as an instrument to lead other people to you. That's what this is all about. And so, guys, even if you feel like you got all that going on, come down here and say, Lord, will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? So guys, anybody, the invitation's open. You can join me down here.